All right, so tonight we get to continue on with the seals. Last, last Thursday we talked about the first one, which was the white horse. Um, everybody remember the notes we talked? We talked a lot about the white horse. It's really about all we talked about. Hello. Uh, the, the kids are back there. How are you guys tonight? Okay, so last week we, we talked about the white horse. This week we're going to talk about some more. And our friend up on the screen here, Mr. Red Horse, um, how many throughout the week read through the rest of chapter 6? Oh, uh, how, how many have read chapter 6 all the way through before? Okay, how many... How many took the time when they read through it to actually think about the horses and what they represent? That's what we're going to talk about tonight. We're going to, we are going to get through most, most, if not all, of chapter 6 tonight. So what we're going to do is I want to, I want to read it again, but we're going to read it from the beginning, even though we talked about the white horse, but we're going to read it through and then we're going to talk about some things. So chapter 6 starts off like this. Now I saw when the lamb opened one of the one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out, conquered to conquer, conquered and to conquer. We talked about that, the white horse being the Antichrist, because the bow had no weapon, had no arrow. Um, we had talked about how he was going to come onto scene, and he was going to conquer with deception. That's how he was going to be able to conquer everything, with the peace with Israel and all that stuff. But now we're going to go to the next one. It says, when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, come and see. Another horse, fiery red, went out, and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth, and that the people should kill one another. And there was given to him a great sword. Now, Red horse. When we hear the word red, what do we what do we automatically think? Blood, right? We think blood. Well, if we remembered, hi Timmy. If we remembered that the first horse was the Antichrist, and at the midpoint he was going to break that treaty with Israel. So the natural thing that's going to happen when when he breaks that treaty is now it's going to begin war. He's going to want to take over war. We're going to be actually looking at that war in detail in Ezekiel, but not tonight. But the red horse signifies, it's, it's blood red, so it, its appearance it speaks like vision, like I said, of war, of bloodshed. But what I like is it says, look, it says on here that God will give this horse and its rider the power to bring the worldwide war. So this horse himself is coming, and God is going to give him that power. He's going to have the power granted to him or permitted to him to create war on the earth worldwide. But as terrible as this first horse is, this red horse, as terrible as it's going to be, this is only going to be the birth pain. This is really the, the very beginning of the wrath of God. You notice they call it in Scripture, there's two things. They say the wrath of God, and then they speak of the great and terrible day of the Lord. That's speaking of two different times. And we're going to see the great and terrible day of the Lord here shortly. But it says that, they sh that people should kill one another here on this horse. Um, the language there means that violence will be common among people. So when it says that, that, we should, that people should kill one another, it's going to be a common occurrence. Like, it's going to be like us going to the store to buy something. It's going to be so common with people just slaughtering each other. So it's going to be the way they live. What's that? does, doesn't it? I mean, you can think of that today. I think we see, you know, we're not in it, but we see those pains, those seasons, where it's becoming more of a common, violence is becoming common. It's a common thing. A lot of people don't even think about it anymore. Violence is on the television, and we just look at it, and we're like, oh, that's just violence. It's becoming common. What's that? That's exactly right. And that is exactly what this horse is going to do. When that war comes in, that big war comes out, 
the, the actual, the, most of the killing is going to be done by each other. Because they're going to be, I say it this way, the way the language speaks, it's going to be of a self-sufficient kind of survival. It's going to be, life doesn't matter to me, I matter to me. So that's the kind of, that's, that's what's going to be around. But notice it says he has a great sword. And when we read that, a lot of times we think great sword. I get in my mind this picture of the big sword like the Romans carried, the big long sword. But that's not what the language is. This sword here is not a long sword. It's not, it's not a broad sword. But rather, has anybody ever heard of the, the, a sword called a dirk? Okay, very small. It's a very small sword. That's what it's describing here. The actual word for sword here is makare, and it means a dirk. So the sword that it's talking about is a very small sword that was used for up close and personal assassinations. So this speaks that the war, the violence that's going to be happening is going to be so personal that people are going to strike out against each other with no care for the other person. It's going to be like an assassination. It's going to be like their goal is to take out the other person. That's what this sword means. So this is all stemming from this horse. I said there's going to be less concern for life and only concern for personal satisfaction here. Interestingly, the word kill that's used in here, it says this, that people should kill one another. The word kill is fadzo in the Greek, and it means to be butchered as a sacrifice. That's what that word means. To be butchered as a sacrifice. So again, that's playing into the idea that violence will be, I will kill you so you don't kill me. That's the kind of life that's going to be going on, that it's going to be commonplace. We can't picture that right now, but I think we can see some of that, like Heather was saying. If you look out there right now, people don't have a problem being violent to other people. Look at the, you know, I'll just use, I'll just say it, the protests and the riots and stuff that go on. The, they are condoning the violence, but not condoning the nonviolence. So we're seeing that already. So we're seeing the birth pains out of that. Now, that's your red horse. So the white horse comes, and he's the Antichrist. He comes in, he makes a peace treaty with Israel. At the three and a half year mark, he breaks that peace treaty. The next horse naturally happens, the red horse. So, in, in, in your idea, if war is going on, what's natural to come out of war? That's where this next horse comes in, on verse 6-5. This is the black horse. So it says this. When he opened the third seal, Oh, I don't, I was just like, what is that? <laughs> so the third seal. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come and see. So I looked, and behold, a black horse. And he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a Daenerys, and three quarts of barley for a Daenerys, and do not harm the oil, and the wine. So the red horse is signifying war. War, worldwide war. The black horse, black represents in this, in scripture, and also here in the language, it represents famine. So that is what's natural to come after war, is famine. Because think about it, have you ever been to, well, some of us have, been to an area that had the war zones going on, where watch on TV when they have war. The natural thing that happens out of war is food becomes very scarce. We have to bring in supplies because there is no food. So the black horse signifies famine. The previous horse will destroy most of the world's food supply. So the red horse, because of the war, food supply will be diminished. And now the black horse comes, which is the natural reaction of that, and it brings famine. Um, this will also spawn global hunger. We see hunger now in other countries, but picture what you see over there, like uh, where those countries, have, they have no food, they're eating very poorly, and that's gonna be worldwide when this horse arrives. Um, 
What I want to focus on, though, is the pair of balances, or some of you guys in the Bibles might say pair of scales. Um, the pair of balances, who knows, who can picture a balance? It's got the two trays on both sides and the balance wheel, balance beam in the middle, and they put stuff on it and weigh it out, right? That is, that is what it's talking about here. The language speaks of a common, a common measuring device. Um, so the way it's worded indicates that the scarcity of food will lead to rationing and food lines. That's what the language says. Because of the scarcity of food, food will be highly rationed. And we can see this, if you ever watch on TV when they're like bringing food to other countries, you see them line up and they all just wait there to get food. That's the image that it's painting right here. But this is a worldwide image. It's not gonna be this one little section. This force is gonna cause famine, it's gonna be worldwide. And they're gonna be waiting in line. Also, the word balances is zugos. And this is really interesting. It means to join or to yoke. Also means to be in servitude or obligation. So, in the original language, what is being said is here is that in order for you to eat at this time, you are going to have to be in servitude to the rider of the horse. In other words, if you want to eat, you're going to have to turn from Christ or, or and bow your knee to the ones on the horse. And that's what the word means here. It's a law, obligation, and servitude to be yoked with. And that's, that's interesting because food will be used for control at this point. So think about it. The church is gone. Remember, we talked about this. The church is raptured. So those that are left here are seeing these beginnings. They saw this war. Now they're starving. Those who are left are starving and they need to eat. And natural, your body's natural reaction is, he will feed me if I become servant to him. What are, we, what are they going to do? They're, most of the people are going to give up what they believe in at this time. Because we're going to see here, they're going to know where this is coming from very shortly. But they're going to turn to that horse and be yoked with it the rider of the horse so they can eat, so they can survive. But um, he talks about a few more things in here I want to talk about. A measure of wheat. We read that and I guarantee most of us picture, what do you picture when I say a measure of wheat? Anybody have anything in their mind when I say that? Okay, that's what I think. Yeah, bushel basket of wheat, right? That's what I picture. That's not what it is. A measure of wheat is the approximate amount of food that would sustain one person for one day. So that's about a bowl, about this big. It will sustain one person for one day. So, three measures of barley is the next thing it mentions. And now, understand, barley is animal food. This is what they would feed to the horses. It's very low in nutrition. Even the barley it's cheaper than wheat, but it'll still require a daily, your entire daily wage to be able to feed an entire small family horse food at this time. So think about that. This is how controlling the food source is going to become. So you're going to be having to make a choice. Do I eat myself healthy or do we eat horse food so my child can eat or my my sister eat. So you're going to see, remember I said the, the first horse said we're going to start killing each other, right? Do you see how this is playing into it now? Because also now we're going to be, food is going to be so scarce that it's going to become a commodity. And I believe, according to this, that this will become another reason that we will not value each other's lives. Because at this point it's going to be survival. I need to eat. And I believe that you're going to see we're going to see later because of the, the, the magnitude of this, I can believe and I can see people actually sacrificing family members so they can eat. Because remember, when we get down, we don't know what it's like to starve. We don't know what it's like to be without food. But imagine being in a time where food, where you could not get food at all, and the food you could get was horse food. 
And if you give it to your family, you only get one meal. And that's, it's just going to be terrible. So this horse brings that in. But it mentions in this scripture also, do not hurt, hurt not the oil and the wine. There is a couple ideologies out there about what this means. Again, I, don't, I won't teach ideologies. I'll teach what it says in scripture about what the original language but I will say many have translated this to believe that it was some kind of spiritual thing. Because we know the oil and the wine represents different things in Scripture. But, this is not what it's speaking of here. The context and the language here indicates speaking of these two items as a base staple food. And here's why. We have to kind of put our minds back in this time frame when he is writing this book. Oil, back then, was used to make bread. Okay? They couldn't make bread if they didn't have oil. Now also, wine, back then, was used to purify water. They couldn't drink the water back then. Why do you think they always had wine? Wine mixed with water and it would purify the water. So, what it's saying is, that these items, that oil to make your bread, that wine to give you water, will become a luxury that will be well protected and not available to those considered unworthy of it. It's going to be rationed and guarded and protected. So now I want you to think of this. You're eating grain. You can't make bread. You can't purify your water. So now you're drinking nasty water, stagnant, stale. You can't make a loaf of bread for your family. You're eating horse food. The next horse is the natural reaction of all of that. The next horse. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come and see. So I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And the name of him who sat on it was death, and hell followed with him. And a power was given to him over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, with hunger and death, with death and by the beast of the earth. Pale horse, red horse brings in war, black horse naturally follows, famine. What happens in countries where there's extreme famine and they don't eat? How is their health? Not good, is it? There you go. What do they get? Dysentery. You ever seen the pictures with the big swollen bellies? Because they can't eat? The natural reaction of this, of the black horse, is the pale horse. The pale horse in scripture represents the idea of a decomposing corpse. So it's representative sickness. What it's saying in here. Is it is that the word is color is hard to say this word chloros and it just the color is an ashen green pale characteristic of a decomposing corpse. So the pale horse is the natural progression from the black horse of famine. Now we've progressed into sickness. And if you think about it, that's how it works. But here's what's interesting. The word pale is the word, like I said, chloros, and it is where we get our English word chlorophyll. How many know what chlorophyll does? What's it do? What happens if you eat chlorophyll? Your body? If you chlorophyll? Yeah. Chlorophyll, you heard of chloroform? Yeah. That's the base component of chlorophyll. Chlorophyll is the base component of chloroform. So what happens if you ingest that? Sick. Dysentery. Extreme sickness. It also can be comprised into embalming fluid. So everything it's talking about here is giving you the image of a rotting corpse. It's, it's, it's showing you the devastation that the famine has brought. That's why it says, and death 
that he was given power to death over a quarter of the, a quarter of the population. Can you imagine a quarter of our population all of a sudden dying? How many have heard people say, or, or, or teach that, you know, we're in the tribulation right now? I've heard, I've heard them say that. I've, I've seen it recently, actually, saying that, you know, we are in the tribulational period right now. Well, I'm sorry, but Scripture says that a quarter of the population has to die. And I can doubt that a quarter of our population has died all at once from sickness and famine. So, we are seeing birth pains. We are seeing the, the, the season, the, you know, and it's going to talk about that in a minute. We are seeing the beginnings of what it's going to look like. But remember, the church, the church of Christ will not be here. So he goes on in his pale horse. There's some things I want to talk about. It says that he, that hell comes with him. Um, it's hell, or Hades is the actual word that's used, is, is an actual fitting partner for this horse. It's an actual, it, it matches completely. Because the horse is coming to bring death following the other horses. So let me ask you this. If it's following the other horses, did, he, did that horse have to, did that horse cause the death? Or is that horse reaping the benefits of the other horses? Right. So everything is moving in a progressive state. But here's where it gets interesting. The fifth seal. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they had. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? I'm going to stop right there for a second. Do you notice anything different about this seal? No horse. No horse, okay. We've shifted now from destruction to all of a sudden the fifth seal we're looking at the saints, the martyred saints. Yes, so we've shifted from this view to a heavenly view. And you've got to ask yourself, why? Why would in the middle of all these seals that are going on in right one right after another, a natural progression, why does Scripture stop us and take us to a heavenly view? What's that? That's a good way to put it. See, this seal describes the force and the power of the prayers of the saints. The events of this seal, this is what's important. The events of this seal right here mark the beginning of the three and a half year, like the last three and a half years of tribulation. They mark the beginning. This is the midpoint. And people are like, well, it's seal five. How can it be the midpoint? Because it is. And there's more to come. Seal 5 is the midpoint. This is your three and a half year midpoint. And also, the first four seals involved the actions of man. Right? Basically, the first four seals involved the actions of humankind. We partake. We did what this said. The last three and a half years when God unleashes his judgment and his in, the wrath in these intensifying ways that we're going to see. I want to talk about it. Under the altar. Who knows what that means there? What, what is he referring to? How many of you studied the Old Testament sacrifices and incenses and stuff like that? When it speaks under the altar, it's a reference to the altar of incense in the Old Testament. That altar was a it's a picture of the saints. What he's picturing you is the saints' prayers rising up to God is a sweet is a sweet smell. So what it's talking about is the power of the prayers of the saints here. And they're, they're crying out, you know, talking about how long, how long, God, how long are you going to make us wait? How long are you going to avenge our blood? And we'll see what he says here. But he keeps going here. And where I stopped at, it says, then a white robe was given to each of them. And it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both of the numbers of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were completed. So the answer that they get, how long, Lord, how long, Lord, before you avenge our blood? 
God says, when the rest of your brothers who are to be martyred is full. So again, we see God doing what in Revelation? He already has a plan. Remember, Paul told us in Romans that this will all take place when what? When the Gentile, when the fullness of the Gentiles is come. So it's only when God knows. Here, his answer is, only God knows. It will come. My vengeance is coming. It is surely coming. When all of the people that, are, that should have been martyred for me will be martyred. Now, I'm not saying God is a person like, they have to die, they have to die. It's God knows that these are his children. And we're going to see later in Revelation. Remember I said, if you're here on the earth during this time and you choose Christ, the outcome is not good. So, so these saints that are bartered, right? Yes. Are they seeing all this stuff going on that's already happening? The, the ones the, here? The, the other, the five seals being broken? Oh, anybody that's in heaven is seeing they, this. They're yeah. not saying, well, I think they might have had an object for it. Oh, that's, that, and that's right, yeah, because they're watching this. And, and it's the, under the altar. They're not physically. We get it to the image. There's not a bunch of saints hiding underneath the altar. Yeah. It's the image of all the prayers that these saints are praying and saying, Lord, how long are you going to, when are you going to avenge our blood? And they're watching this go on and watching, picture this in heaven. Watch it. But, but also in heaven we have not perfect knowledge, but we do have knowledge. We have an uh, open understanding. We have a different view of things. We say things now darkly but when we're in heaven we'll see them clearly so we'll understand but the call out here for is is the image that john's trying to show us that what he saw was the power of the saints prayer okay so here he's talking about that and like i said it says it tells him wait a little bit white robes were given to him and just wait a little while just wait so again this is going to be a theme as we start as we get going through deeper in revelation of this waiting it's, it's a theme that's going to go on. So, I want to keep reading and we'll to go back and talk about something. And then it says, the sixth seal. So remember, before I get into the sixth seal, the fifth seal gets opened. And it's, so we got the first seal, the white horse. The second seal, the red horse. Third seal, the black horse. Fourth seal, the pale horse. Then all of a sudden, the fifth seal, we're in heaven. And now he's going to open up the sixth seal. And it's going to take us not quite back to earth, but kind of there. It says, I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood. And the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it's shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky recorded rescinded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of place. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? So, this right here, the sixth seal, is the first time in these seals that we no longer see human interaction required to make the seal happen. This seal is a direct action of God. No longer is human. Remember, the first four seals required us to interact. To, it was done by human means. It was brought, a horse was brought in, and it was done by human people, the Antichrist, all these humans. Now, we crack that fifth seal where we were at, and he showed us heaven, and it's that end of that three and a half year period, and now the great and terrible day of the Lord has come, where now God is now directing his own wrath towards us. And this is the first time humanity goes off. Yes. Yes. There is. That's what's great about this. The very first time God puts his hand out and pours wrath, and believe me, he's just getting warmed up. Yeah, they didn't say it about the horses. Right, they didn't say anything. None of the horses did they cry out, oh, we're hiding from the Lord, we're hiding from the Lord. None of them. 
But when this one thing, this first seal cracks open and God himself does this, everybody on the entire known world knows that this is from God who they didn't believe existed. And they're now trying to hide from him. But we're going to look at some things. But I want to talk about the great earthquake. Um, who would agree today we've seen many earthquakes? And we've seen some bad earthquakes, right? All right. So when I read this, I had to go to, I broke it down because I'm thinking great earthquake. I mean, we've seen some bad ones. The language here describes something that's never been seen before. The language describes, and this is literally what it says, every fault line in the world cracking at once. Every single fault line in the known in our entire world shifting at one time. Think about this. Look at California when they shifted a half or two. It almost it was it almost an inch. How bad was that earthquake? I mean, it dropped bypass, it dropped roads, it dropped everything. That was one tiny fault line. The language here says this will be all fault lines shifting at one time. That'll create an earthquake. This earthquake will produce cataclysmic results. This earthquake, and we're actually going to, for the men's group, remember when we read Ezekiel? It talked when we were back, some of you should remember. We're going to look at this because in Ezekiel, he tells us a big, he gives a great description of this. But it means a cataclysmic earthquake. Nothing that we could ever imagine. It would be undescribable. But, Notice it says, after that it says, the sun became black and the moon is blood. Well, if, I, if the entire earth shifts and has an earthquake all at once, a cataclysmic earthquake, what's going to happen, do you think, to all of the volcanic pressures that are on the earth because of those fault lines? That's, they're going to erupt. That's right. And that's why it says, right here when it talks about the, the black, that the sun became black, is because all of that catastrophe will bring up ash and debris into the atmosphere that will blacken out the sun. And that will also, if you've ever looked at something white through, through debris and cloud, it, it gives it a hue, a red hue. That's when the moon will be as blood. Yeah, and we've seen, remember that one big one? How far did it travel recently? That was that one massive earthquake, and it traveled almost, it did get to the U.S., didn't it? That soot cloud that was in, it got to the U.S. So picture, what was it, which one was it? Who were, was that Hawaii? No. Iceland. It was Iceland. It was just, it wasn't six months ago. Yeah, it floated all the way over to California. Um, so that was one. This is going to be, everyone going off at the same time because of that shift in the fault lines. So it'll blacken out the sun and the moon will appear as red. Now there's there are other things we can talk about of a blood moon and there's a lot of things out there about the blood moon. I'm not, we're not going to get into that yet until we get farther down. But here it's not describing that spiritual blood moon. Here what it's describing is the, the, the result of this earthquake darkening the sun. So let me ask you this. We have a big earthquake, so, okay, we went through war, not us, but the people here, and then they go through food being rationed and famine, and now they go through massive sickness, and now there's no sun. How, what is next? Have you ever, can anything grow without sunlight? Can anything grow with only sunlight? Gotta have an equal balance, right? Both parts are taken out. The moon and the sun can no longer shine their light. So at this point now, now nothing on the earth will be able to produce. It will not grow. The plants, everything. And you're gonna see that because after the seals, you still have the trumpets and the bowls. And they're, they're, they all go together in line. So the, the great thing here is if you want to read more about the blackening of the sun and the moon, read uh, Zechariah chapter 14. It gives one of the best 
prophecies about this ever. Chapter 14. Well, and through the heathens, like he cannot handle. You can't. That, there will be so much insan literal insanity. Yep. It, it, I mean, I can't even, reading it, we read it, and we still can't even wrap our minds around what it's going to look like. And all of this, and this is where people get the idea that the book of Revelation is all about destruction. But it's not. There, you're going to see the purpose for all this. And the purpose is because all of this is happening because God needs to save his people. And unfortunately, we know this as well as anybody else. There's some people out there we can't save and we can't Christ until they basically reach the end of destruction. To where it's like a last ditch effort that they're going to, if they don't make this decision now, they're going to die. And that's what you're seeing here. So, the next verse is 6.13, where it says, I see it was 12, I looked, this is the sixth of services, then the sky rescinded as a scroll when it rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. Okay. Every mountain and island moved out of its place. That makes sense according to all the fault lines shifting, correct? Once all these fault lines shifting, the, the, the earth itself will no longer be what it was. It's going to alter the entire earth. Everything, that's what it means about mountains and everything moving out of their places. It's going to be altered. It's going to be different. Um, the, when it says it rescinded as a scroll, Isaiah tells us a lot about that. We're going to read that tonight. But that is an image of the atmosphere that we see being gone. So now, you're on a planet with no atmosphere, with no sunlight, with no moonlight, what to speak of. Sickness and famine and death everywhere. You see the picture that's getting painted here? It looks what? Hopeless, right? It, it looks hopeless. You need, well, we need a lot of things. I mean, without the atmosphere. What's that? We're all dead. We can't, nothing to think about. And here's another thing we don't think about. If the Earth's atmosphere disappears, we will freeze to death. Freeze to death. So now it's going to become extremely cold. You know, this is the image he's painting. This is a, an image of it's over, no hope. And I love that, that God inspired him, the Holy Spirit inspired him, to pour this out at the beginning of Revelation because we're reading this and we're like, and most people get confused. They think this is the beginning of Revelation. This, what we're reading, is well beyond. It's way back here in the tribulation period. And the book of Revelation starts out telling you the end before it tells you the beginning of it. And that's what I love about it. But it talks about this too. Notice when it says that, and the kings of the earth, and the, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave, and every free man hid themselves. What that means is this one seal, every single person left on the face of this planet will realize all at one moment that there is a God. All at one moment that there is a God. See, and that's the defining moment. You notice God sent and used man to bring these plagues. Nobody called out to God. But when God himself opens that seal and does it himself, every man on the face of the earth, at one, just picture this, at one moment realizes that there is a God. There's no other because there's no other option. There has to be. They are going to realize that there is a God. In all of this time, remember where it says, we hear it all the time, every knee will bow, every tongue confess. Well, I like to say this, you're either going to bow in submission or you're going to bow in loss. Because you're going to bow. Either way, you're bending the knee. Okay? And you have the choice to bend the knee to come to Him in servitude or you have the choice to bend the knee because he defeated you. Okay? And that's the image you're getting here. What I want to do from here is I want everybody to jump back to Isaiah chapter 34. And we're only going to read verses 1 through 4 in this chapter. I'll wait for everybody to get How many have little headlines on the top of their Bible that kind of tells them what the chapter is about? What does yours say? Judgment 
judgment on the nation, judgment on the nation of Israel, indignation of the Lord. So there's all kinds of little titles in there, but they all mean the same thing. They're all going to mean the same thing. So remember, this is the book of Isaiah. This is a prophecy that we're going to read, which was thousands of years prior to the, to the book of Revelation or being put to paper. This is what it says. Come near, you nations, to hear, and heed you people. Let the earth hear, and all that is in it, the world and all things that come forth from it. For the indignation of the Lord is against all nations, and his fury against all their armies. He has utterly destroyed them. He has given them over to the slaughter. Also their slain shall be thrown out. Their stench shall rise from their corpses. And the mountains shall be melted with their blood. All the host of heaven shall be dissolved. And the heavens shall be rolled up like a scroll. And their host shall fall down. And the leaf, as the leaf falls from the vine, as a fruit falling from a fig tree. So I'm going to stop right there. What you just read was exactly what just happened in the seal that was cracked open. So Isaiah was writing a prophecy at this time, it was to the nation of Israel, saying that this is what's going to happen to you. This is what's going to happen to you if you do not turn to the Lord. Remember at this time, Israel had a bad habit of not looking to the Lord. They liked the benefits of it, but they didn't like the idea of the servant. So he's telling them this is what's going to happen. And now the church is gone. So we'll say the people left on the earth. We won't, I won't call them Israel, but let's call, let's call them Israel for just an idea time. Because it's not the church that's here, right? The church is gone. So Isaiah has given a prophecy to Israel. What he's prophesying is to is to the ones who are remaining on the earth at this time. After that three and a half year point saying, this is what's going to happen. Now God himself cracks that seal and that's what happened. That's why every man on the earth at that given point will understand and realize there is a God. So, I'm going to go back to Revelation. Now, I just wanted you to see that because it goes directly with what's being said. And I'll read it again. Just like we just read there, it says, Then the sky rescinded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave, free man, hid themselves in caves and the rocks and the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us, and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne. So, men are going to call out at this point. They're going to call out for death. Okay, they are. They're going to call out for death. But it will not be granted. Picture that. We talked about this in the movie when the men's group went through this. You're at a point now, we've just seen what we've seen. And now God has brought this big disturbance to the earth. And we're crying out because we know there's a God. And we're crying out for death. And it does not come. No death. You're not allowed. It's not given. We want the rocks to fall on us, but it's not coming. And you're, So you want to know what would be difficult to go through something? Be in a situation where death needs to come. And it doesn't. And it can't. That's where we're at. That's where it leaves us, right here. In chapter 6, it does not go to the last seal. It doesn't go to the seventh seal. Chapter 7 doesn't go to the seventh seal. The seventh seal is intentionally not brought up until later in the book. The reason why, how many, how many knew that, know that there's bowls and there's trumpets and all that revelation? And how many have been confused because of where they're put through the book? They're, they're randomly moved around. Because people are like, oh, we have the seals here, and then we have the bowls here, and we have the trumpets here, so they must be different kind of things, right? It must be different wraths. They're not. They're not. They all go with each other. During this three and a half year period, this last three and a half year period, where we're reading these seals, 
The bowls and the trumpets happen also. That's why the seventh seal right here is not given to us. Um, so before, I don't want to get too much information beyond this tonight because there's so much coming up and there's so much information that this is what we had to do in men's group. We kind of had to slow it down a little bit and not pour too much information because we'll forget it by the time we get home. Um, what I'd like to do tonight is going back into these seals, what have you, you guys have any questions or anything that you want to know more about that we can address directly? Okay. Well, well. I mean, everybody has been martyred, or is that just the... Everybody has been martyred, yeah, yes, you're right. So there's still people who will come to Christ. So when they call out, they'll be calling out to him. That calling out will be different. That'll be, I'll be calling out to the Lord at that point. Now, the rapture's happened here. The church is gone. Okay, so the people, to answer that, so the people left on earth, they're hiding, telling the rocks. The ones who are hiding are not the ones looking to the Lord. Okay. So, like, all the people that were already crazy about yep. They're gone. They're gone. And there will be some during this last three and a half year period that will come to Christ. But it's not, they won't, it's not going to be, oh, I come to Christ and now I get to live. It's going to be, oh, I come to Christ and now I'm going to be slaughtered. Because that's the choice they'll make. But yet here, what he's describing here is those who are not the Lord's. And those who are probably not going to, they're, they're calling out to die because they fear. Not fear as a reverence fear, but now they fear what they said never existed. Can you imagine living your whole life believing that God does not exist and you can do whatever you want at any point in your life? And then right here in that one moment, you realize everything you said has been false and that God does live. That, that you, you're going to run, you're going to be scared. Gonna hide. Well, I think of the line in there too about you know how when he describes whether it's the president on down to the mm -hmm. lady, you know, the person who had been looking to this leader and <coughs> aspiring to become elevated in the world standards and realizing that had nothing. nothing. I nothing. mean, all of this stuff is is just um, the last word in this, this whole entire chapter says, who is able to stand? Who is able to stand? It is, in the language, it has a two-fold meaning. And I saved this for the end. That it has a two-fold meaning. What it means is, is who is able to stand? No matter how strong, is what you were talking about, someone is in this world, they are not going to be able to stand in the presence or under in the might of the Lord. But also, that also has a second meaning. The second meaning in that language is but those who are his will stand. That was a good question. Who is able to stand? I That's exactly what it means. Okay. It's like, who's able to stand? And the world is going, not me, but those who are his are, are going, I can stand. So that's what it means, and that it's got twofold meaning. It's not like, who can stand? It's like, who can stand? And the world is saying, I can't. And his, his, those who have chosen him at this point are going to be like, I can stand. So it's, it's got that dual meaning. And um, it's and it's going to be by the Lord that they're going to be able to stand. So it's got a beautiful meaning. But these, these, these visions, these first seals, it's important that we get the vision right in our mind because as we go through the rest and we get into the bowls and stuff, they go with this. So remember, we have the white horse first. We're going to recap. The white horse first. The white horse comes in. He's the Antichrist. He is the one who ushers in all of this. And the church will be raptured. We talked about it. The church will be gone prior to that because for the Antichrist to be granted his power, the church can't be here. Because we said this, if the church is here and the Antichrist is on scene, who is he going to deceive? Because the church is going to be like, we know who you are. 
So that's another indication that also, for all of this destruction to unleash, the Holy Spirit's restraint has to be removed. So that's another indication. Because when the church leaves and is raptured away, the Holy Spirit's not staying here. It's going with us. So that, that, that Antichrist, that white horse, ushers in the beginning. And then we go right in line. I mean, it, we read this, but it's not going to be like one here, one here. It's going to be boom, 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 boom when this happens. So the Antichrist comes in three and a half years. He's got everybody believing he is Christ. He's, he's ushered this great peace treaty. There's world peace everywhere. Everybody's running around with love signs and they're loving everybody. And then right at the middle, he decides, you know what? I've had enough. I'm breaking this peace treaty with Israel. I'm going to destroy them. They're no longer allowed to worship. I'm going to bring in the abomination of desolation. There's no more worship. And I'm going, now the, the horse of war comes in because we're going to take over. So the war comes in. Then naturally the famine, then the sickness, then the diseases, and then God throws the wrath down. And that's where we're left off. But all of this is in the beginning of Revelation. But it's not the beginning of Revelation. You understand what I mean? It's not the beginning. This is more of the end. And I think, I mean, I don't know, but I think that I love what the Holy Spirit inspired him. I, I, I firmly believe God showed us the worst at the beginning of this so we can see His grace now when we go through the rest of it. Because if, if we just stop reading right here, as most people do, Believe it or not, most people only read to about chapter 7 of Revelation. They don't go much farther than that. And if we stopped right here, we would firmly believe that this book was nothing but violence, destruction, and, and the end of mankind. And, and, and it is, in a, in, a, in a nutshell, but there's you know, a lot more stuff to go through. And it's all about grace. The next chapter we get into, it doesn't even talk about seals anymore. We're going to get into the 144,000. And I'm real excited to get into that because I haven't even taught about the 144,000. There's a lot of teachings out there about that. A lot of teachings out there. They have a very unique view of that. Yes. I believe they believe that they're going to be the, they are the 144,000. Like that's the only one literally that's going to be left. And then there's those who believe that there will literally only be 144,000, which we'll see that that's probably not the case. There are those who believe that this is speaking directly of only Jewish males. That's been out there. Um, and then there's other beliefs on this 144,000. And why is there so many beliefs on it? Why is there so many? Nobody knows. That's right. Nobody really knows. So we'll put it in context of the chapter of what he's talking about, and we'll show you what it means. Um, I don't need to spiritualize the book. It's got enough images in it without me adding some more. I mean, we're not going to talk about, and we laughed about this in men's group, I could make this thing talk about airplanes, missiles, and rocket ships if I wanted to. I could add my own images, but I'm not going to do that because, you know what, I don't want to, I don't want to, it's not me to do that. I'm going to teach you what the book says. And then we'll know what it means instead of me trying to make it something it isn't. I don't have to make this pretty. This book's already pretty, right? Amen. And I don't have to add images to it. There's already enough. By the time we get into about chapter 10, we're going to be imaged out. This is going to be, you know, we're getting ready to talk about some ugly creatures here soon. But I want you guys this week to read chapter 7 on the 144,000 because I want you to form your own opinion of what it says. That way we have questions when we get done. Because the best way to learn in this, like we did in the men's group, is to ask questions. And there's no question that, that, is, that should not be asked. I don't think the littlest question is the biggest question. So, like I said, one more tonight. Recap. Remember, white horse, red horse, black horse, pale horse. All was human interaction. Human interaction. And no man ever ran from God during this. Matter of fact, most men probably tried to serve the horses to get what they needed. Yes? Uh, back on chapter 6, last verse, uh, this, this chapter is really a dark chapter. Yes. 
However, that last verse, even though it says wrath, it has light in it. Yes. Because wrath can also be interchanged for judgment. Yep. If you take that and go back to Psalm uh, 77, first, I'm sorry, 75, 7, it is God who judges, he brings down water, but he exalts. Exactly. So and it, it should still light there. Yes. And that's why that's why I wanted you guys to see. That's why I wanted you to see that last line that he said there. Who is able to stand? It goes right along with that because it's a dual meaning. Yep, it's dual. It means no unsaved the, the belief the unbeliever will not be able to stand, but the believers who believe in him will be able to stand through him. And so exactly that's exactly what it's talking about. And most people read that. I, I honestly tell you this: the first time I read that statement, I read it as like a statement like who is able to stand. That's how I read it. Because we just went through it, but it's not. It's a question. So, um, anything else? Any other questions on this stuff here that I didn't get to or you always wanted to know? So the preppers just are the ones that don't believe in rapture. So they think they have to afford for this situation. I would have to say that. But there's, there's a couple beliefs on the rapture. And there's, well, of course, there's the no, no rapture belief that, that we as a church and everybody is going to go through the whole thing. There's no rapture. That's one of the teachings out there. So, if there's no rapture, I'm going to be a prepper, right? I'm going to prepare for everything. There's also the teaching that, yeah, the church is going to rapture, but we're not getting raptured until mid-trib at that three-and-a-half-year mark. Okay? And then there's the teaching, which I hold, and I, and I believe is biblical, because it's everywhere in Scripture, that the church is removed prior to the seven years. And, I mean... We could go back into Scripture and give thousands of examples on that, but I think the best example is the Scripture itself. Like I said, I love using the Antichrist to prove it because people don't think about it. If the Antichrist is here and the church is here, how can he operate? He cannot operate. So that's proof. So yeah, I think the preppers are more those who think that we're going to be through it or that the world's going to see some kind of zombie apocalypse, which I can understand where they get that from. You read this stuff, Actually, a seven-year seven. period. Um, it's probably Jewish. What is the seven? What is the Jewish seven? What is the seven years in Jewish? It comes into the year of jubilee, doesn't it? What's jubilee? What happens freedom. to the year of jubilee? Freedom. Forgiveness. That's freedom. Everything. So the seven. What happens at the end of the seven years of the tribulation? Freedom. New earth. Everything's replenished. All debts have been forgiven. It's so powerful. So. So the question is, how are people going to come to Christ if the Holy Spirit's not here? The answer, which Scripture's going to answer for, I'll give you a little piece, is right now the Holy Spirit does what? It convicts us, it does all this stuff, right? The Holy Spirit is gone on the earth at this point. So everybody's like, well, I can't come to Christ then because who's doing the convicting now? God the Father. He is, because it says, it took his direct action for those people left to go, oh, there is a God. The Holy Spirit's been there the whole time, and they're like, there's no God. 
These people that come to Christ, are they're not going to be compelled by the Spirit anymore. Oh, okay. okay. They're going to be compelled to come to Christ because of their true belief. It's not going to be like, we have the luxury today of the Holy Spirit convicting us and letting us know that we're sinners and we come to Christ. And, and that's all. Kind of it's a different kind oh, of thing. Okay. So, and that's great for us because we come to Christ and guess what? We love the Lord and we're with Him and, and we have promises and He's going to remove us out of this. We have to go through this. I want you to picture these people as like a stubborn three-year-old. That they've had to be beat and beat and beat and beat over and over with the same words over and over and over again until they finally get it. And at that point, they're like, they come to God. Now, we're going to see that in here. We're going to get into a lot of that. But it's going, remember what happens to them once they, they come to God. Um, but from here on out, in this period we're at, it's God directing everything. God's, God's, so even though we, we like to think the Holy Spirit's gone, well, what did Christ say? If I don't leave, what? The Holy Spirit did not come, right? He had to leave for the Holy Spirit to come. Well, now, the Spirit leaves, and God comes. Isn't this where we've lost a quarter of the population? Yes. Yes. And with this wrath, it's another third the next ones, yep, we're getting ready to come into another third. So we've lost, keep that in mind. We've lost a quarter of the population right now. And then when we get into the other ones, we're going to lose some more people. But, yeah, that's exactly, remember that? Because we sat back and counted it. We're like, for those of you who think we're living in the tribulation, according to scripture, it's about three quarters of the earth is dead in the beginning of it. So if that's not happened yet, we can't be living in it. We can be seeing the seasons. And why I want to talk about seasons in this scripture. Did you notice it said something about the figs getting blown off a tree? Okay. That was a reference back to something Christ said. And it was also a reference to something Christ did. Remember when Christ, what did he do to the one fig tree? Why did he curse that tree? Okay. Also, in Matthew, what did he say about a fig tree that produces its fruit late in the season? It said... They are no good for harvest, and they will just fall off the tree. One tree was cursed because it produced nothing. The second tree was basically cursed because it produced them too late. Yeah, remember? So here it's referring, when it says that he's referring to a fig tree that has fruit hanging on it, but no leaves, and it's like in the wintertime, what happens when the wind blows? They fall off and die. So... I'm not going to give away what he's talking about because we're going to get into it, but I wanted you to keep that image in your mind of a fig tree with figs on it in the middle of winter with no leaves. And then remember what he did to the tree that didn't produce any fruit. Anything else? Anybody confused tonight? So what happens to all the people who, you know, they, they, you know, they, they survive their faith or whatever, and, and, you know, they fall to the family, and they bow their Can you ask me that question one more time? Do you say what happens to the people who are with Christ? Well, I mean, you know, like the people, like even the people say, you know, like half of us, you know, we're all Christians, you know, we're Christians. Okay. But half of us fall to, you know, bowing the knee to get the food to be in their family, to get the food, what happens to them? Okay. So the question is, what happens to somebody who's a Christian and then during that time they bow their knee to get the food or whatever? Oh. Okay. Well, first off... <laughs> we got to separate it in two answers. First off, the church is gone, so they're gone. So you're talking about people who have come to the Lord during the tribulation. Right? Because the church will be gone. So all their, I missed that. I missed that's that. okay. That's why. Yeah. So all his people in the church are gone? Are gone. Well. We're raptured out of here. But that's still a good question because I want to address it. Because there will be people who come to Christ in the tribulation. That's the point of tribulation is to get his people. So there will be people who come to Christ. And to ask, well, what will happen if they bow the knee? They won't have the opportunity to bow the knee. Yeah. They will not have the opportunity. When they come to Christ in the tribulational period, there is no other option for them. They will be martyred. Yeah, they will be martyred. Um, but that's a good question. That is even, just remember, the church is gone. And I want to keep, I'll keep reminding us, during this time, that the church, the Christian body is gone. We're not here. We're not in this. So even though, even though that sounds like a terrible thing, like they will be martyred, that's still God showing His mercy. Yes. They don't have 
Yes. And people have said that to me. We're like, why are they? Why are they getting? What's so gracious about them getting killed right now in the tribulation? Because they don't have to go through what's coming. It, you know what? Yeah. I mean, the Absolutely. Yeah. Because when, I, I'm telling you, and I've said this over and over in the group. When they come to Christ here, they come to Christ knowing that the minute I make this choice. I am the enemy of every person here and they're going to do me in. You get cold. They're the aroma under the altar. They're the aroma under the altar. Yeah. I just had one more comment. Something yes. that I did occur to me. Um, when the Black Horse comes and you have the balances, yes. and, you, and you said that it meant um, to be joined by like, the yoke, mm -hmm. he's coming for the people with curse that my yoke is but I want you but also I want you to see it like they're gonna see it they're not gonna see Christ's yoke is easy right they're gonna see this yoke is easy exactly. because I'll be able to feed my family I'll be able to take care of everybody so I'm gonna take this yoke and at that point they still think that was bad you know they don't want to die right so there's very very few people yes very very few people yes there is and it's that's why this book is so graceful because God does not have to think of this. God does not have to do this. He's doing this because He desires everyone to be saved. I like saying this. This is like God again going, "Look, people. I don't know how many times I got to tell you I love you and I want you here. So I'm going to hold off for a while. I'm going to send you some spankings, and I'm going to hold off some more. I'm going to spank you again, and then I'm going to hold off some more. I'm going to spank you again." So you'll turn to me. So does this directly refer to then the scripture you just spoke about with um, until the last Gentile? Yes, until the fulfillment of the Gentiles has okay, come. We've got a question about that because it's not in our time. No, it's not. So this get out there, spread the word, get the balance in, but and then the rapture happens. We've got to quit looking. Now I want you, but I, I want to. I want to clarify what Paul was speaking of when he said, when the fulfillment of the Gentiles has come, he was talking about the rapture happening. So when that happens, Christ will rapture his church. Okay. But when you're talking about watching for Christ to come. Yes, that's what we're told. We're not going to be here to watch for Christ to come. We will, well, there's, another, there's two, two different times, yes. The, the ones for the church, and then the second one's when he'll put his foot on the mountain. Okay. And the last thing on that I was going to say is, um, so, I haven't lost my thought on that one. Oh, That's all right. Really. Yeah, yeah. That we'll see him in the clouds and the foot on the ground. So, what we saw tonight, like I said, was is, is the ending of the is the ending of the book. And we haven't got there yet, but we're going to go through. Nice, I'm going to go backwards. How many? Before we leave tonight, last thing I'm going to say: How many know the Book of Revelation has the birth of Christ? In it? I saw it. That's because I showed you, right? <laughs> the birth. What's that? The entire birth of Christ is in the Book of Revelation, and it's so infatuating to see. But on that note, any other questions? Yes.